Welcome to the wicket. Hello, and it's another visit to The Wicket, your weekly podcast from Arab News, looking at the world of cricket locally in the Gulf, regionally across Asia and worldwide. I'm Brian Murgatroyd, and with me to discuss and analyse events across the sport are Arab News columnist John Pike and Arab News cricket reporter Sebash Hamagain. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Brian. Hello, John. Hello, Brian. And in this episode, we speak about the fourth test between India and England in Ranchi, which saw India seal the series with a match to spare. There's the ICC Cricket World Cup Challenge League playoff in Malaysia, where eight teams are battling for four spots to retain a chance of qualifying for the Cricket World Cup in Southern Africa in 2027. There's the ongoing Women's Cricket League in India, which began just after our previous episode and which has already produced some compelling cricket. We wrap up the ICC World League Two tournament in Nepal, involving the hosts, Namibia and the Netherlands. We discuss some controversy in the final match of Afghanistan's tour of Sri Lanka. We catch up on the Australia men's tour of New Zealand. We sift through the latest happenings at the Pakistan Super League and the Bangladesh Premier League. And John and Sabash give us their highlights of the past week in cricket. So, as ever, lots to cover. Let's get started. We begin with India's five-wicket win over England in the fourth test in Ranchi with a day to spare, a result that gives them an unbeatable 3-1 lead in the series with one match in Dharmashala still to play. It was a gutsy battling win for India as there were several occasions when England seemed set to take charge of the match. They scored 353 thanks in large measure to Joe Root's 31st Test 100, a return to form for him after meagre returns in the first three matches. And then they reduced India to 177 for seven in reply before Druth Jurel's 90 helped reduce the first innings deficit for India to 46. England then reached 110 for three in their second innings before losing their last seven wickets for just 35 to set India 192 for victory. The home side slipped from 84 without loss to 120 for five in the final innings, only for Shubman, Gill and Jurel again to shepherd them to victory in impressive fashion. For England, Shoaib Bashir took eight wickets in the match, but it was impossible to escape the impression that this, for England, was a serious missed opportunity. John, is that the way you saw it? And if so, where did it all go so wrong for Ben Stokes' side? Yes, they got in front um, on more than one occasion, but um, failed to capitalise. I think in the cold light of day, they're not technically or weren't technically good enough on a consistent enough basis compared with India and the players that India were able to bring in as, as replacements. Looking for positives, Bashir is a serious talent, however, uh, and I think that... Um, commands well on Stokes and, and the selectors for identifying him. So that's good for the future. Yes, eight wickets for Shoaib Bashir, including five in the first innings. Sebash, on the other side of the coin, you've sung the praises of Dhruv Jurel on this podcast in the past, and you must have been mightily impressed by the way he won the match for India with the bat, with two fantastic innings under pressure. He was player of the match, and deservedly so. 
Well, he had the numbers in very little first-class cricket, but even I am surprised to see him contribute this way with the bat. Uh, India were struggling with a good keeper, and I think now they have someone they can rely on the lower middle order as well. Jurel was exceptional playing out the overs in midway of first innings, and when he needed to accelerate, I think he opened fire, uh, got near the century, deserved one, uh, missed out, but I think second innings was even more impressive with the pressure of result hanging over, but uh, he never seemed to be under it. Uh, I think he came in to face the hat-trick ball, but uh, stayed till the end with Gill. I think uh, it's a great statement from him. John, India's tail wagged, and that cost England dear in the final analysis. Was there anything else Ben Stokes could have done to prevent that, do you think? I'm not sure. I think that uh, they, they obviously batted very well in that lower order, with Jarrell leading that particular phase. I think all credit has to go to them. For me, you know, the damage is actually done in the third innings. And that collapse you've already referred to, down to 145. And I think that shows a, a lack of technical expertise and perhaps a, a lack of real experience in uh, being able to turn the screw when, uh, when it really matters. Yes, that was a, a disastrous collapse for England, no question about that. Sebastian, there's been so much praise for Ben Stokes' captaincy. So a word too, perhaps, on Rohit Sharma, who's marshalled his team so very well in this series, hasn't he? Rohit has found answers when in doubt uh, Zuriel and Sarfaraz have copped up well after getting their break in uh, in the third test only. Uh, that is as decision to elevate him in batting order right and even without Kohli, Jaiswal has been in top form. So I think Rohit is getting much helping hands from his teammates like uh, Stokes has not been. Yes, that would certainly appear to be the case. Rohit's uh, had a lot of help from particularly the younger players and he's performed so well in the last couple of tests himself to leading from the front. John, with the series gone, do England give the likes of Gus Atkinson and Dan Lawrence a chance in the final match of the series? Or is that simply not the style of Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum, who do, as we've seen, like to persevere with players? Well, one would hope so. Um, Atkinson hasn't bowled a ball. Lawrence hasn't had a chance. I personally think Bairstow needs a rest. I think he's technically flawed uh, under Indian conditions. He does look um, like a rabbit under headlights um, when facing spin bowling. And, of course, Atkinson could have been making some money in the uh, Pakistan Super League. So uh, I think uh, on compassionate grounds, he, he deserves a go in, a, in, in what is now a sort of you know, dead series. Well, that would be fascinating if Johnny Bairstow was given a rest, of course, because he's on 99 test appearances at the moment and uh, the game in Dharmashala would be his 100th. So we'll see what the selectors come up with there. But Sabash, it really is exciting for India, isn't it, to win a series of this magnitude with such an inexperienced batting lineup? There was uh, no Virat Kohli. KL Raul only played a very minor role. No Rishabh Pant as well. Goodness me, it bodes very well for their test future, doesn't it? Yeah, Jurel and Sarfraz, I think they have been impressive. Uh, they had to wait until third test. Uh, but if you compare them with Patidar and Varat, I think the result, the performance speak clear. And these youngsters have grabbed the opportunity with both hands. Uh, now with Raul, Kohli and Pant nearing comeback, uh, I think... Uh, the Indian team will be happy. Their bin strength is strong and if needed, I think they can come and play in the front foot. Well, the final test of the series gets underway in Dharmashala on the 7th of March and we'll chat about it and wrap up the series as a whole once that match finishes. Let's talk now about the ICC Cricket World Cup Challenge League playoff. It's taking place in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. 
and there's been some competitive and controversial cricket as eight sides try to keep alive their hopes of qualifying for the next ICC Men's Cricket World Cup. Those eight teams are Bahrain, Bermuda, Italy, Kuwait, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Tanzania and Vanuatu, and they'll be whittled down to four by the end of the tournament after playing in two groups of four, and then the top three in each of those groups going into a Super 6 stage. The controversy came right at the end of the group stage as Malaysia bowled a wide to prevent Vanuatu hitting a six to win the match and so overtake them on net run rate. Malaysia then needed Bahrain to beat Tanzania and that would have meant that Malaysia, Tanzania and Vanuatu would all have been tied on the same points tally and if that had happened, the net run rate would have come into play with Malaysia moving into the Super 6 stage ahead of Vanuatu. Well, as it was, Tanzania won and so Bahrain, Tanzania and Vanuatu moved forward from that group, Group B, while Kuwait, Italy and Bermuda went through from Group A, with Saudi Arabia missing out. Sebash, first of all, Malaysia courting controversy with their actions. What do you make of it? It's hardly the spirit of cricket, is it? Well, I'd not align this one with the spirit of cricket. I think they knew the calculations and wanted to keep themselves in touching distance if the other results went their way. Uh, good thing is they were well aware of the numbers and not just Malaysia. I think Vanuatu were keeping track of the run rate as well. And this shows how fine margins are. In associate cricket, uh, personally, I feel sad for Malaysia. I think uh, we expected them to reinvigorate themselves under Virandip's captaincy, but uh, things have not gone their way. And it's, it's, it's a sad story for them. Yes, it is a sad story for them. But John, not only Malaysia, but also Saudi Arabia missed out, even though they finished on the same points as Bermuda, as the tiebreaker was the match between those two sides, which Bermuda won ahead of net run rate. Are you happy with that, or do you think net run rate should have been the decider? Well, I'm not a fan of net run rate. Even more so, I'm not a fan of penalties um, resolving football matches. Net run rate's arcane, and it's complex, and it has blemishes. Now, it's not linked with a team winning a match or wickets lost, for example. You might ask, what's the alternative? Head-to-head, but when the sides don't play each other, as in the case of this tournament, it's an issue. So it's um, it's an unresolved problem. Uh, but I am pleased uh, that Malaysia did not progress. Uh, I don't think that deliberate bowling or wide in those situations is in the spirit of cricket at all. And I wonder whether umpires ought to be allowed some discretion to overrule such deliveries. Well, that would be uh, an interesting thing if that were to take place. And uh, as you say, you could argue that uh, Malaysia got their comeuppance there. They were certainly uh, playing by the rules, but perhaps not by the spirit of cricket, as you pointed out there. Sabash, no side remained unbeaten in the group stages of the tournament. On that basis, is it possible to pick a likely winner or is it simply too close to call? I think the group is still open. Uh, Kuwait are one of the favourites in my eyes, but uh, there will be close finish for the, that second spot uh, and beyond, uh, still surprised how Malaysia and Saudi failed uh, despite having good start. Uh, they had great opportunity to get through, but I think it's it's mixed results and anyone can beat anyone apart from Kuwait. Well, that's uh, associate cricket for you, isn't it? The, uh, the fact that it is so cutthroat. We've seen that so many times in so many different competitions over the years. John, what have you made of Saudi Arabia's struggles here? It will no doubt frustrate them after their recent success in the 2020 format in the first stage of qualification for the next T20 Asia Cup. But do they have to be realistic and, and acknowledge that this setback, painful though it might be, is all part of a learning process for their players as they develop? 
Yes, I think I think they do, and they will. Let's remember they weren't very far off. You know, Forum's defeat to Bermuda. You know, there's all the difference here. So I think we can regard them as improving pretty well all the time now. The more exposure they get to um, these sort of matches and these sort of competitions. Yes, four runs between the two sides and that ultimately cost Saudi Arabia a a place in the Super 6 and it's another illustration of the fact that associate cricket can be so cutthroat. Well, we'll keep across the Challenger playoff for you as it reaches its conclusion and bring you a wrap-up on our next episode. And if you'd like to know more about cricket in Saudi Arabia, then there's plenty for you to read on the subject at the Arab News website. That's www.arabnews.com forward slash cricket. The first tri-series of the World Cup League 2 has wrapped up in Nepal, with Namibia coming out on top with three wins from its four matches against the Netherlands and the hosts. The Dutch finished with a flourish, with an eight-wicket win over Nepal in the final match. And for Nepal, it was a story of disappointment. Just one win for them from their four games, and that came in their first meeting with the Netherlands. Just like those teams in Malaysia, these teams are also trying to stay on the road to the next Cricket World Cup in 2027. There are eight sides in World League Two, the three who played in Nepal, plus Canada, Oman, Scotland, the UAE and the USA. Each side will play three series at home and six away for a total of 36 one-day internationals with the top four sides going straight into the next Cricket World Cup qualifier, while the bottom four will take part in a playoff alongside the top four sides in the World Cup Challenger League that we've already spoken about to reach that World Cup qualifier. Sebash, you were at the tournament in Nepal. Five of the six matches were won by the side batting second. Was the toss really too crucial in what happened? Well, the 9.30 start meant it was hard for batters until the sun f- was fully out, uh, but uh, even the top-order batters failed to start well in the first round. The case was different in the second round, and all the captains agreed that the condition was not miserable, but the approach on opening the batting was uh, only Namibia defended the score, losing the toss, but uh, it could have been Nepal in either of two matches against Namibia as well. Well, John, after missing out on the last Cricket World Cup qualifier... It's a great statement by Namibia, this, isn't it? Getting underway in the way they have. Yes, it's a, a fabulous response. And, uh, of course, in the latest match, we've had the uh, fastest T2100 by the delightfully named Jan Nicol Lofty Eaton, which I think we'll probably hear of uh, more from uh, Sebastian in a while. Yes, we'll chat about that towards the end of the podcast. Sebastian? Nepal went into the series with a long unbeaten run of one-day internationals at home, and yet they finished up with three losses in four matches. How much of a shock was that for the home fans, or should they have been expecting it, given there has been some rebuilding taking place within the squad? Uh, well, the away team ended last cycle and played excellent cricket with understrength squad against Canada. The fans expected much from the team, but I think... Uh, experimentation within the squad during the league to hurt the result. I think uh, there's no need of rebuild, but performance from some individuals in that Canada series forced the team to alter their original setup and that cost the team dear. I think uh, the head action selection and inconsistent middle-order batting was the reason. Uh, I expect uh, even the result, I think we lost only two matches uh, throughout the cycle and this time we have already lost three. So I think that that's a big blow. 
Yes, uh, Nepal will certainly need to uh, put their house in order there if they're to uh, retain their chance of a top four finish. John, the Dutch, as always, seems to be the case. They didn't have their full strength side on duty, but many of the players there had experience in the now defunct World Cup Super League against full members. How do you assess their efforts in Nepal? Played four, one, two, lost two. Well, obviously, uh, very patchy. I think part of the clue, you know, as Sebastian's has mentioned, is, is independent upon the toss. You think they um, they lost to Nepal and then a week later won by eight wickets. They beat Namibia and then a few days later um, lost to Namibia. So uh, there's not a very clear pattern at all associated with that. No, well, uh, the focus switches to the UAE in uh, the uh, World League Two now, where Canada, Scotland and the UAE start their own campaigns as we record this podcast. We'll speak of that action in our next episode, and we'll also chat uh, as well in detail about uh, the tri-series that's now taking place in Nepal, involving Nepal, Namibia and uh, the Dutch that's a T20 tri-series as the teams get ready for uh, the T20 World Cup, of course. Afghanistan's tour of Sri Lanka wrapped up in controversial fashion with a win for the touring side by three runs in the final 2020 international in Dambulla. Afghanistan posted an imposing 209 for five, with Ramanala Gurbas scoring 70 from 43 balls, but Sri Lanka almost chased it down and perhaps would have done, but for an incident in the final over of that chase. With 11 needed from the final three balls, Wafadar Momand bowled a delivery to Kamandu Mendis that appeared to be above waist height, but it wasn't called as a no ball by umpire Lyndon Hannibal. Sri Lanka's captain, Wanindu Hasaranga, was so incensed that he called out the incident afterwards and said the umpire should look for another career, something that earned him a trip to the match referee and ultimately a two-match ban through an accumulation of ICC Code of Conduct penalty points. It means he'll miss the first two 2020 internationals against Bangladesh scheduled for March. A remarkable incident, that, at the back end of uh, that tour. John, what do you make of what happened? Is there any scope to have some sympathy for Hasaranga, given players are often expected to speak when in an emotional state straight after a close match? Well, I've got huge sympathy for him. Uh, I know there are contractual issues, having to appear in front of a microphone, but having one thrust down your throat when you've lost in controversial circumstances um, is very difficult to, uh, to cope with. Uh, for what does seem to have been an umpire error. Yes, uh, it does seem to have been an umpire error, but uh, unfortunately, uh, Hasaranga and everyone else uh, knows uh, how things stand in that regard, of course. The umpire is always right, even if he's wrong. Sebash, just as was the case at the end of their tour of India in January, Afghanistan have won the final match of a tour. Why do you think it's once again taken them so long to show their true colours? I think not being able to carry on the momentum uh, like we discussed earlier and uh, they've come close but uh, could not get over the finish line and even in this final win I think the game was not far from a drama but I think Trot's work with the team is still in progress. They've talents especially for T20's uh, real stars in Azmat, Rasid and Gurbaz I think will be playing in IPL out of the World Cup and uh, that will mean more. 
And Sebash, how optimistic are you for Sri Lanka for the T20 World Cup to come on the basis of this series? Well, one Hindu has made a great comeback from injury and so has Matthews after all the drama in between. But uh, how they will manage the workload is yet to be seen. Like they have main players playing in the IPL, will join the team ahead of the World Cup. But uh, how much playing time will these players get will be very important because you you want these players to not overborn as well as get some game time ahead of their main tournament. And John, there's still no Rashid Khan for Afghanistan as he recovers from back surgery. Is it a case of it simply him coming back to make them a force to be reckoned with? Or is it a bit more nuanced than that? Well, he would improve many teams if fit. Um, we don't know if he is going to be fully recovered from the surgery. I suspect the issues run a bit more deeply. In the amount of cricket that's being played and the amount of demands upon players require pretty deep resources and a stability of management. And I think unless those are, are in place, it's quite difficult to maintain a consistent standard of cricket. Well, Afghanistan are now in the UAE for a multi-format series against Ireland with a test match in Abu Dhabi, followed by three one-day internationals and three 2020 internationals with all the white ball matches taking place in Sharjah. The 2022 T20 World Cup champions Australia have laid down a marker for that upcoming tournament in the Caribbean and the USA in June with a 3-0 series win in New Zealand. And they won in different ways in the three matches too. In match one, Tim David produced a stunning late blitz with 31 not out from 10 balls to help his side chase a daunting 216, winning off the last ball. And then in game two, after scoring what appeared to be an under par 174, Australia then rolled New Zealand out for just 102, with Adam Zampa, who was hammered in the first match, bouncing back with four wickets. Then in game three, a rain-affected match, the Australians comfortably defended a Duckworth-Lewis-Stern-adjusted target in a match that was reduced to 10 overs a side. John, a lot was made in match one of Australia conceding more than 200 runs for the fourth 2020 international in a row after their three matches at home against the West Indies, but they still won. And they appear, you would have to say, to be in good shape for that World Cup. Yes, they certainly are. I think Mitchell Marsh is relishing uh, his role as leader. They're testing the squad and they've got strength in depth. There are players they can afford to leave out. I think they're... Uh, developing again to be a pretty formidable force. Sebash, Steve Smith seems to be the puzzle. They selected him, picked him for matches two and three when David Warner was injured and he opened. He scored 11 from seven balls in the second game and four from three in game three. Do they stick or twist with him when it comes to that World Cup or look elsewhere for someone more dynamic, like a, a Jake Fraser McGurk, for example? Well, I'm an admirer of Smith, but uh, right now he's making it tough for everyone staying with the D20 team. Uh, he's contributed a lot in Australian cricket, but uh, his game is nowhere near to be fit for that uh, T20 World Cup uh, opener. Uh, I think Fraser McGurk has shown what he can offer in very little opportunities he has got. Hayden Warner may be another set option up top. Uh, Josh English has put his case forward too. And uh, with Josh Brown now busy with franchise leagues after BBL heroics, you never know what Australia have in mind uh, going outside the box. 
Yes, that's an interesting call. Uh, Josh Brown, who was, of course, so outstanding for Brisbane Heat at the back end of the Big Bash League. He might be uh, someone who's coming up on the rails there in terms of the selector's thoughts. We remain to uh, see what uh, happens there. John, a word on Ratchin Ravindra, of course. He produced an incredible display of hitting in match one with 68 from 35 balls. And he's gone from being Ratchin Who to many people ahead of last year's Cricket World Cup. He's now become an all-format player and one of the first names on any team sheet. Now, we know you're a fan, but even you must be amazed at the speed of his rise over the past six months. He's been um, been quiet for a little time over the last couple of months. It seemed that New Zealand were keeping him a bit under wraps, managing his progress. And now he's exploded again in T20, which was not considered to be his forte. Looks to be on a mission to me, and the sky looks to be the limit. Uh, I'm not surprised, I'm just pleased. Yes, he's going to be on his way to the IPL as well, of course. Let's not uh, forget that too. Sebash, if you were a New Zealand supporter, would you be worried by these results? Uh, a 3-0 setback against Australia? Or is it simply a case that all three matches could have gone the other way? Uh, Batting-wise, I think they have that firepower uh, that's required for that game. Uh, Bowling-wise, I think they can still do better. Uh, Lucky's pace uh, with center spin has been strong, but I think Bolt seems to be struggling with more and more franchise cricket uh, around the world and ahead of the World Cup. I think they need to have him at his best. The two sides now switch format with two test matches for the Trans-Tasman Trophy, and we'll chat about match one of that series, which forms part of the ICC Test World Championship, in our next episode. The second edition of the Women's Premier League in India has begun with a bang as five teams, Mumbai Indians, the champions, UP Warriors, Delhi Capitals, Royal Challengers Bangalore and Gujarat Giants set out on the path to what will result in the title for one of those lineups. The opening match saw Mumbai beat Delhi off the last ball with Sanjeevan Sajana hitting the only ball she faced for six when five were needed from the final delivery. Mumbai, the defending champions, then followed that up with a far more comfortable win against Gujarat to set the early pace, while Delhi bounced back from that initial setback to thrash the Warriors by nine wickets with five and a half overs to spare. Subash, the two finalists from season one, Mumbai and Delhi, already seem to be flexing their muscles. Well, the opener itself had everything, I think, to have a debut in pelting the winning six of last ball. I think it's, it's tough of dreams. The game could have gone anywhere. And as we rated Delhi and Mumbai as top teams, I think the results have shown the same. I think they, I expect them to continue the same result going forward as well. John, we make no apologies for again mentioning Catherine Bryce, the Scotland all-rounder and a rare player from an associate country to be given an opportunity in this tournament. And she was outstanding for Gujarat in that loss against Mumbai making 25 from 24 balls to lend uh, the innings some respectability. And then she took one for 22, including a maiden. That's a terrific effort from her, isn't it? It is, and it's a welcome justification for her selection. Yes, it certainly is. And it's uh, very pleasing to see her, A, being given the opportunity, and B, as you say there, John, getting the chance to, uh, to, to show what she can do. What have your impressions of uh, what's happened so far been? 
Well, it looks like a tournament that's going from strength to strength. And I was particularly um, uh, particularly noted the performance of Sophie Molyneux. She's been, um, been out of the picture for a while. She came back, I think, to claim three for 20-odd in, in, in her spell. So uh, that's good to see as well. Yes, it's a pleasure to see Sophie Molyneux uh, back in action. She's been out uh, from the, the top level of the game for a long, long time with some serious injuries. She's been given the chance. She played, of course, in the Test match against South Africa in Perth, ahead of the uh, Women's Cricket League too. Sebash, two defeats from their opening two matches for the Warriors. One, a narrow two-run loss to uh, RCB, and the second, that nine-wicket humbling by Delhi. On paper, they look as though this shouldn't be happening to them. They've got Alyssa Healy, Grace Harris... Talia McGrath, Sophie Eccleston, Deep D. Sharma in their lineup. What's gone wrong for them in those first two matches and can they turn things around? Well, the first match, I think that was well within the control. The batters could start uh, and couldn't convert it big. And at the end, they lacked said batter to finish the game. Uh, in the second match, I think they live overpowered the series. Uh, post-start, yes, but uh, a couple of wins uh, will bring them back into contention. And I feel they have uh, individuals just to do that. Well, we'll stay across all the action in the Women's Premier League for you here at the Wicket. The Pakistan Super League has rolled out of Multan and Lahore, its first two stops during the tournament, with the next phase of matches taking place in Ralpindi and Karachi. The storylines of the tournament so far have been the impressive form of the Multan Sultans, the winners in 2021 and the runners-up in the past two editions as they've won four of their first five matches. But on the other side of the coin, the defending champions, the Lahore Calendars, the only side to retain the title, having also won the PSL in 2022, they've made a disastrous start to their campaign. They've lost their first five matches. John, first of all, let's talk about the Sultans. What's been the key or keys to their success so far, do you think? I'm not sure you can pinpoint a single factor. In a way, they have a different coach, um, Abdul Rayman, who has been assistant to Andy Flower before, who is now uh, now in charge. They have Nathan Lehman uh, as their chief uh, analyst. Interestingly, they have a female fast bowling coach. They have a female general manager. I'm not sure whether either of those um, individuals, uh, what, they're, what they're contributing to success. I think Rizwan uh, is in form. He's um, been dropped a couple of times. And we had um, Iftikhar Ahmed, of course, got 24 in the penultimate over against Lahore. Looks like um, the players are performing. Um, lots of good things happening for them. And so far, it looks to be a pretty well-organised camp. Yes, good to see Mohamed Rizwan uh, being successful. He really is a terrific all-format player, no question about that. But Sebash, I'm not sure anyone predicted Lahore's uh, form to fall off a cliff like this. What on earth has gone wrong there? Well, the batters have done this, but I think it's bowling unit that needs to step up. Uh, her situation has only made it harder for them. Uh, skipper Sain has been performing, but he's not getting that support from compatriots in bowling. Uh, Zaman Khan especially, he has been a huge disappointment for the team. Uh, someone who has played for the national team, and is vying for a spot in the T20 World Cup. I think he should step up and get some performance out of him. Yes, you mentioned Harris Rauf there. Lahore lost him with a dislocated shoulder, suffered against the Karachi Kings in the side's fourth loss of the season. That caps a pretty rough period for him, with his central contract having been cancelled in the wake of his reported refusal to tour Australia with the Test squad late last year. 
he now faces a race against time to be fit for the T20 World Cup in June. Meanwhile, in Bangladesh, the BPL is coming towards a conclusion. The seven sides that started out were whittled down to four, with Rongpur riders and Camilla Victorians occupying the top two places, while Fortune Borashal and Chattagram challengers came third and fourth respectively to face each other in the eliminator. The tournament has rolled along in parallel with the DP World ILT20, the Big Bash League, the SA20 and the PSL. And Chandika Hathra Singer, the Bangladesh head coach, has had some very interesting comments about it in a recent interview. First of all, he said uh, he felt that Bangladesh players weren't getting enough opportunities to shine and that they were often demoted in favour of overseas players. Subash, was and is that a fair call? Well, that has been the case most of the times, but I think these teams pay heavy fees for the overseas players and are bound to make most of them. Uh, even the Bangladeshi players have not fared well when they've got the chance, and reliance on overseas players is increasing. However, uh, talents like the Hoid Ridoi, sorry for Islam, even Tanjit Hassan have impressed. So I think uh, it's kind of mixed uh, mixed reaction. And John Hathrasinger has also called on the ICC to do something about players coming and going between leagues, something that causes confusion to fans and disruption to squads, as well as moving the goalposts during the tournament. It's something we've spoken uh, spoken of here on the podcast. But of course, the $64 million question is, what is that something that he wants the ICC to do? Indeed, and one may ask what can the ICC do even if they wanted to? I don't think they're in a position to force a salary cap. We know the uh, the market's heavily present in this franchise arrangement. It's not a very satisfactory uh, situation. Can we expect the franchises to collude in this? Probably not. I mean, they're not all Indian, but uh, um, there are others involved in this. Um, I, I don't see um, a very easy solution to this until such time as um, some external factor happens that forces them to um, uh, to reconsider. Yes, it uh, is a ticklish situation. There's no question about that. Well, by the time of our next episode, the BPL will have wrapped up and we'll review it all then. And we will, of course, stay across the action in the PSL here too at the Wicket. Finally, gentlemen, what has caught your attention in the past week in cricket? What uh, what, what have you seen and uh, what has struck you? Sebash, first of all? Well, I was lucky enough to see the T20 fastest century record getting broken. Some, something I was in China when Kusal Mala broke it and now loved it and has done it brilliantly. I think he was hitting all over the park, swiping at every ball that comes his way and uh, he, he, he made it... He himself didn't believe that he had made the fastest century, but uh, we are in awe to see that innings. Yes, Nick Lofty Eaton in Nepal, 33 balls for 100 in a 2020 international. Absolutely uh, remarkable stuff from him. And I said what had struck you, Sebastian. There must have been every chance that a ball would have struck you the way Lofty Eaton was uh, was hitting it, particularly in the second part of his innings there. John, what uh, what's tickled your fancy? Well, the... Um... The retirement of Neil Wagner from international cricket in a rather emotional press conference. He's not a man who strikes one as, uh, as being particularly emotional. His calling card is to bowl short without any remorse. So I think it was a, a surprise to see that, that level of emotion. 
Um, but it's also pretty um, representative of the way that New Zealand are quite cold and um, forward-thinking in the way in which they decide that uh, they're going to move people on. Um, he wasn't selected for the first test and decided that um, the writing was on the wall. So I think it's um, I think it's quite a quite a sad thing to uh, to see, uh, especially for him. Yes, yeah, sixty four tests, two hundred and sixty wickets, an average just over twenty seven per wicket. It's an outstanding career that he's enjoyed, Neil Wagner. There was a lot of speculation, of course, that he'd renew his rivalry with Steve Smith in the, uh, the two-match series coming up in New Zealand. Well, that's not going to uh, take place now. And perhaps Smith and a few other Australian batters are uh, relieved men as a result of that because Wagner always giving 100% and his figures, well, they'll stand the test of time. No question about that. Well, thanks for joining us at The Wicket. That's the end of another episode. We'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on what you've heard wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd along with John Pike and Sebastian again saying thanks so much for listening and we look forward to your company next time.